Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available for free in iTunes and at thejazzsession.com. If you go to thejazzsession.com, you'll see in the upper left-hand corner a little box which shows you who's on today's show. That box is uh, called a widget in web terms. And you can have that very same box on your own website. You can get the uh, All About Jazz Jazz Session widget. Then just click on the box, and it'll take you to a little page for that show. And you'll see some uh, piece of text up in the right-hand corner that says Get Widget. And you can do that, and there's some code you can just easily put on your site. And I'm telling you that because if you do that and you let me know about it, then I will mention your site in my weekly newsletter. So uh, please add me to your site, and I'll be happy to add you to my newsletter. Thanks. Some of you know uh, that before I began interviewing jazz musicians, uh, I, I was one for a while, and my instrument was the soprano saxophone, which is a notoriously difficult instrument to master and really, I think, demands that you spend a lot of your time on it. But most people don't. Most people use it as a, a second or third instrument in the saxophone family when some other instrument is their main one. Uh, Sam Newsom, though, decided at one point to uh, make the jump and just to concentrate exclusively on soprano, and he's had a, a very interesting career as a result. His most recent record is called Blue Soliloquy, Solo Works for Soprano Saxophone, uh, and it begins this way with a tune called Blues for Robert Johnson. My guest is soprano saxophonist Sam Newsom. He's released a solo album called Blue Soliloquy, which explores the many facets of this fascinating instrument. And it is my distinct pleasure to have Sam Newsom on the show. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. 
So uh, I don't usually inject myself into these interviews too much, but I'll just tell you that um, before I interviewed jazz musicians as my as my thing, I, I was one, and I was exclusively a soprano saxophone player. So uh, I have followed your uh, your move to that instrument over the last uh, well decade and a half now, I guess it is, with a lot of interest because I always appreciate when anyone decides that it's an instrument complex enough to focus exclusively on. Um, and I really love this new record. I think it's it's fantastic. And I, I guess I'll start off maybe by asking you um, what what you were going for conceptually with Blue Soliloquy. Is there a were you is there a particular kind of either compositional or a thematic idea that you would think underlies the record? Well, I guess there are a few different things I wanted to I wanted to bring to the forefront. I guess one was just the many different. Uh, sounds and, and textures that you can get on the instrument, but I didn't want it to only, I didn't only want to present it in the, in the context of, of noise, but I wanted to, you know, really present it in the context of, of a composition. And the second aspect I wanted to bring to the forefront was, uh, uh, sort of using the blues as sort of the basis to explore all of these things. Because I, I found, Whenever I can interject blues into anything I do, I, I find that it it adds a certain humanity to the music, you know, rather than make it sound cold or or intellectual. It's very interesting because this album covers so much, I guess, thematic ground or mm-hmm. musical ground, for lack of a a better way to describe mm-hmm. it, that. I think you could play this album for someone without telling them the title of the album or any of the compositions. And I think the humanity would come through, but I'm not sure they would necessarily pick up on the blues because you, you're able to surround it with so much other texture. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I guess the way that I was thinking about it in terms of blues, like for example, there's one tune called Blue Embera, which is, Actually, Mandela's Blue and Bearer, which is based on a on a on a I think a, an A minor pentatonic. So, I mean, if you were to analyze a a minor pentatonic, I mean, it's, it's really just the blues scale without the without the flat five. So, so in so in many ways, I'm I'm actually playing sort of things that are you know, rooted in the blues, but not necessarily being a blues in the in the literal sense. In that particular case, that particular composition, uh, which I want to talk about for another reason too, but uh, just coming back to the, the musical idea, is it maybe more accurate to say there that the blues are in fact rooted in the scales that the Embira is more at home in rather than the other way around? Kind of chronologically speaking, did they evolve, did the, did the blues scales kind of evolve from um, the scales and harmonic structures that the Embira is more associated with? Um, I don't know if that's the case. I'm just asking. Yeah. I think so. Um, you know, I guess, you know, um, musicologists had said that the original blues scale was actually the notes that the West African slaves that were, notes that they were trying to sing that were uh, comparable to their, to, you know, to scales that were a part of their, their folk songs. And a lot of the African folk songs are based on, on pentatonic scales. So I believe that the, the blues scale did, you know, evolve from there.
And now I want to ask you, can you tell folks how you produce um, the incredible percussive sounds that are on this track? Uh, that technique is called the pitch slap tongue, which basically is is uh, produced by by sucking on the reed. It's almost like if you were to uh, like to create the, like this clucking sound on the roof of your of your mouth, like. So you're basically doing that instead of doing it on the roof of your mouth. You're doing you're doing it on the reed. Now, as far as how to actually get the the, the pitch instead of making it sound explosive the way uh, you know a lot of saxophonists play it, that I'm not really sure how to explain. It's, it's <laughs> something I don't know. It's just something I'm able to do. And I've heard a few other players play their the pitch slap tongue technique. I think. Uh, of Rosan Rolling, Rosan Rolling Kirk, you know, he, he, I've heard him do it a few times. Actually, mainly on the on the flute. Um, and I know Fletcher Henderson. Well, he, he mainly did the uh, the um, the uh, the slap, uh, the explosive slap tone. Sam, I know that um, when you decided to, uh, to switch to soprano saxophone and then subsequently kind of after the, the global unity phase, mm -hmm. you spent some, it seemed like you spent some periods of time kind of of intense study of the instrument and um, making almost kind of evolutionary leaps in where you were as a player. Did, did you find that that kind of intense devotion to the instrument was necessary to get out of it what, what you wanted to get out of it? Yeah, because in order to me. I felt in order to truly express myself on the instrument, I, I, I had to, you know, get over these different hurdles. I guess one is, um, you know, the intonation aspect, which I, I still grapple with, you know, sometimes, you know, it could depend on the read or how my chops are feeling. And, and also being able to hear the actual soprano for as a soprano rather than an extension of my tenor saxophone. Uh, because you know, it's, I mean, this is sort of sax geek stuff. But <laughs> but as I, I I found as I uh, became more comfortable on the instrument, I I I gradually started to to play a uh, lighter or a softer setup because I I found I didn't have to push as much air through the instrument or try to play as loudly, you know, as I did when I was. Uh, sort of going back and forth between the soprano and, and tenor. So when I was just solely focused on the soprano, you know, I, I found I could get more with uh, with not as much air. So so it's like little things like that I sort of had, a, had to overcome. And then once I was able to really feel comfortable on the instrument and truly hear the, the the soprano as a soprano saxophone, you know, I started to hear all of the little subtleties in the instrument. You know, I, I guess some, one of those things was, was hearing the multiphonics, in which was, it was kind of weird. I, my sort of my fascination with the multiphonics came from just me playing the instrument and, and having it crack sometimes. It's like, you know, it was kind of a cool sound. I couldn't really control it, but it's like I would play a scale and I would get into certain registers and then a, a note would just crack and it was kind of a cool sound. And I just sort of, so it's almost like I, I stopped that note and I sort of magnified it, magnified it and, and sort of try to explore like what really made it crack. So it was, it was 
exactly through that that I, I discovered, you know, like by changing the armature slightly and also the air the airflow along with uh, alternate fingerings, I was able to consistently, you know, play these cracks or, or multiphonics. Yeah, and there are tunes on here. Um, since there are so many blue titles, I hope I don't mis misname any of them. But I I think Blue Mongolia and Blue Swagger both have uh, melodies and and harmonies that are produced with multiphonics. Um, I think respectively, and there are many other examples on the record. Um, but will you will you tell folks, uh, kind of in layman's terms, for folks who don't really necessarily know how a saxophone works, how you produce multiphonics, what they are? Well, well. Basically, the saxophone is, I guess, what you would call a, a monophonic instrument, meaning that it's designed to play one note at a time. And and the reason that I'm actually am able to play two notes or two or two or more notes is because I guess what happens when you whenever you play a, a blow air or sound is produced through, a, I guess, any wind instrument, you know this. What travels through an instrument is called a uh, a standing sound wave. So this so this so usually there's one uh, standing sound wave that travels through an instrument whenever you hear one note. But what happens when you have these uh, when you use these uh, alternate fingerings? It's it does some it sort of it splits this the sound wave and it causes two sound waves to vibrate. You know, at the same time, going through the, the instrument. So, so as a result, you get these multiple, uh, multiple tones, and which is why a lot of times the the multiphonics are are not are not in tune, or at least not in terms of the twelve tones of equal temperament. You know, it's because you have these sort of unconventional sound waves going through the instrument.
so how much control do you do you have over that? I mean, it sounds in many of these tunes like you you have a great deal of control over the relation of the two notes to one another and, you know, almost voice leading from in the multiphonics. Yeah, you know, I can't, you know, I can't control uh, the notes that come out, meaning like if I use a fingering, like a certain set of notes will come out using that finger. I can't, I can't alter that. So what I do is, you know, I spend a lot of time practicing different multiphonics and, and analyzing the notes. So when I when it comes time to try to apply it to different tunes, you know, just from having analyzed the notes, I know which multiphonics go well with with which melodies or with were which single notes. But I can't uh, as far as voice leading that you know is because. With with certain fingerings, you know, if 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 I just change like a you know a key here and there, that will cause like the the chord to change slightly. But it's like, but even with that, I can't control that. It's like it's sort of like the 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 multiphonics, you know, have their own sort of inherent progression, you know, depending on the fingering. But it's not something I can I can't play a fingering or uh, produce a certain multiphonic using a certain fingering and say, oh, I don't really like that note. I'm going to change that and put another note there. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not able to do that, unfortunately. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Life is long. <laughs> One thing I like about your description um, of the way you approach the saxophone is it sounds like a, a very uh, physical, a kind of very aware of the physicality and physics of the instrument. It sounds like you have, have had to become very in tune with what this actual piece of metal is and what it can do in order to make it do the things that you want, uh, which yeah. sounds like a really cool way to approach your instrument, a, a very intimate way to approach it. Yeah, uh, I remember I had a conversation with Greg Osby it's a, for a few years back, and I was telling him, like, since I've, you know, devoted myself to to only playing the soprano, I've I found myself becoming somewhat of a sound scientist. <laughs> you know, because I, you know, it's like the the instrument is so complex in many ways that I have to. I found that I have to really know it or really understand it to to be able to to control it. You know, I've cause, you know I've even read. You know, I I used to study like different dissertations that I would find online because because there weren't enough uh, sort of uh, published books that, that dealt with this type of material. It was only like these sort of like sax geeks who were, you know, who were getting their, getting their doctors or PhDs, you know, who were really fascinated by extended techniques that I was able to, you know, f you know, find information, you know, from people who had really studied it in great detail. That sounds fun, though. I mean, there it seems like there must not be that many instruments whose territories have yet to be explored, and it sounds like you've got one. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's been great. I mean, it's a, it's a. I always tell people it's it's a the, the cool thing about about what I'm doing is like I feel like I'm I'm sort of starting over in many ways as far as you know, just like venturing down a you know a new path, but I'm but I'm doing it with like you know almost 20 years of experience <laughs> so it's so it's kind of cool
the uh, this album is all original compositions except for the last one, but what you do to it really is is pretty incredible. The last one is uh, Thelonious Monk's Blue Monk, and uh, for folks who don't know, I mean, you're well, no jazz musician is a stranger to Monk's music, but you've also recorded uh, an entire record of Monk's music. Uh, but this last one, uh, Blue Monk, um, uses uh, microtonal playing, which uh, I find very fascinating, and I, I was hoping you might tell folks uh, kind of what that means. Well, well, with the, I guess the mic, microton, microtonality is, is sort of a, more of a, a, a general term to dis- use to describe notes that are, or I should say intervals, that are smaller than a half step. But um, the sort of the microtones that I use on uh, Blue Monk are called quarter tones, meaning they're, um, uh, how can I explain it? Well, quarter tones are the notes that are found when you divide the scale into into 24 equal parts versus... 12 equal parts, which is what you have when you have a, when you play the, uh, uh, the chromatic scale. So if you could play, if, if, if folks are familiar with what a piano looks like, if you could fit a note in between, like, one of the black keys and one of the white keys. Yeah, Right, exactly. right in the middle, you'd, you'd have a quarter tone, right? Like something between C and C sharp, yeah, you'd have a quarter exactly. tone. Okay. So, uh, so I guess what I did with Blue Monk, um, you know, I, you, I guess the sort of like the the interesting thing about Blue Monk in its original form is is the way that Thelonious uses uh, chromatic notes. So I thought it would be interesting if I would just somehow were able to to use that same approach only using quarter tone chromatic notes. So of course I had to I had to alter the melody uh, rhythmically in order to to fit the the extra notes that I had to play in order to. To, to get that many notes into the, I, I guess the, I'm trying to think of the interval. Usually it was falling within a, a third or, or minor third. I read uh, somewhere online you talking about um, really having to train your ears to accurately hear the quarter tones because you have to be exactly right or they're or they're not quarter tones and that's an incredibly small increment uh, to be able to hear and it did it take a long time to get to a place where you were comfortable I mean just kind of in the flow of performance being able to use microtonality yeah um, you know because the margin for error is very slim I have to I, I found that I had to master sort of that interval between like a half step first, you know, like instead of thinking, okay, I'm going to play all of the quarter tones between a C and a D. Like that would actually in many ways be be too much to handle. I had to, just, you know, first thing, okay, I'm going to try to master the, the quarter tone between the C 
and the C sharp. And, you know, that would take, you know, some work just to be able to hear that. So once I was able to master the quarter tones between the half steps, and then I would, you know, try to eventually work up to a whole step and then minor third, third, and so on. But it's but it's definitely you have to, it's a, it's a different way of, of hearing the music and thinking about the music. Uh, one thing that you've mentioned in the past is that when you uh, switched to soprano saxophone, uh, that in some of those periods of intense study, you also started to incorporate more music from other cultures. Can you talk a little bit about that, Sam? Yeah, uh, you know, when I, I guess in the 90s, when I started the group uh, Global Unity, you know, I was I was trying to create a format that um, that I feel would be very well suited for the soprano, and I and I and I think one of the things that attracted me to the the instrument was that it had a very exotic quality about it. You know, it was you know I could hear you know uh, similarities to double reed instruments, to to wooden flutes. Um, to just you know, just various instruments across the globe. So, so sort of in my attempt to to try to master those different sounds, you know, I you know I surrounded my myself with people who played exotic instruments. So that sort of it, it sort of gave me the encouragement the encouragement to to sort of like go with that with that with that sound rather than fight it and try to put it inside of a. A traditional jazz context, you know, I would, you know, for example, I would uh, create a, a platform that sounded very Middle Eastern, and then this would, you know, sort of give me the the go ahead to to really explore that sound to its fullest. So in that, so over the years of having done that, you know, this it's sort of led to me having this sort of all this all encompass encompassing. Uh, very global concept to the instrument, much more so than when I played the tenor.
and that really serves you well when you're trying to pull off an entire album of uh, solo saxophone, at least at least to my ear, because in addition to the extended techniques on the instrument itself, you've also extended your vocabulary, which really me- allows you to explore a much wider territory than you might otherwise. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if I mean, if you listen to uh, some of these folk instruments, you know, I've heard records of people just playing the the, the shakuhachi, which is a uh, a Japanese wooden flute or the bansuri flute, and it's you know, and it's not you know anything out of the ordinary for those instruments to play unaccompanied or to hear like a like a koto or or shamisen or any one of those instruments. So I've I've found that when I do listen to non non-jazz instruments, you know, I I get to hear examples of how you can use a, a, a monophonic instrument to play unaccompanied. We've been uh, talking a lot about your new record, Blue Soliloquy, but there's a couple other projects that I'd like to ask you about. If mm-hmm. uh, if folks visit samnewsome.com, which will be linked at thejazzsession.com, almost the first thing they see is a picture of you playing with three dancers. And I know you've got a piece, in fact, I know you're performing it coming up fairly soon, uh, called Sound Dance for solo saxophone and three dancers. Will you talk about the, the origins of that piece and, and give us a description of it? Yeah, Sound Dance is a, a collaboration that I have with a, a choreographer, Karen Yule. And basically the concept of sound dance is taking all of the things that I do during my solo performances and and I, I guess in some ways uh, choreographing the, my movement and, and having it go along with, uh, with other dancers. Because I guess to explain, I... Whenever I play solo, I you know I I try to utilize the uh, the acoustics very much. So I actually I spin a lot when I'm playing just to try to manipulate the sound. So I thought it would be cool if I instead of just having these sort of random movements, it would be kind of interesting if I would have if I were able to get a choreographer to choreograph my movement. So that's sort of the basis of sound dance. So. Um, you know, we have a performance coming up at um, at uh, St. Mark's Church in, I think, June 17th through the 19th. And it's interesting working with, with dancers because, uh, you know, they rehearse a lot. <laughs> you know, it's like for a jazz musician, you know, you might get together, you know, you know, once or twice before a gig, but with, um, with, a, with a dance performance, you know, you... It could easily be ten rehearsals, you know, just to play, you know, and perform an eight-minute piece. So that's so that's something that's really been uh, interesting to to watch, you know, working on this project. Sam, does that kind of performance allow for improvisation? Um, not a lot, but with these with this choreographer that I'm working with, you know, she's very flexible, so. You know, there are some. I do have some flexibility, uh, but but it pretty much they're responding, or she's creating the movement. You know, based on sort of a, a, a preset sound. So I do have some liberties, but I but I for the most part I have to to stick to the script, so to speak. Now, we're also uh, talking on the phone, if I read your schedule right, uh, just days before you uh, head to Romania, 
and uh, and you'll be. Perf- I have to say, I'm not going to front. You're going to be performing in Transylvania. There's just nothing that is not cool about the fact <laughs> that you're going to be playing jazz in Transylvania. So uh, I'd give a lot for a tour T-shirt with Sam Newsom Transylvania on it. So uh, even if there's only one, you don't have to tell me there's only one. Uh, but will you tell folks about uh, the Romanian American Jazz Suite, uh, how it came about, and uh, these performances that are coming up? Oh uh, yes, you know I, the Romanian American Jazz Suite. Uh, was I guess first conceived back in 2004. Uh, uh, Romanian pianist Lucian Ban and I applied for this grant from a organi- organization called CEC Arts Link, and they sponsor uh, collaborations between artists living in the in, in the U.S. and in Eastern and Central Europe. So you know we applied for this grant and we were awarded some money to to write a piece of music and to present some concerts. So after we wrote the the, uh, Romanian American Jazz Suite, we did a a tour, I think, in the the fall of 2004 or 2005, where we played the the Bucharest Jazz Festival, the Brasio Jazz Festival in in many clubs throughout Romania. And since then, you know, the project has sort of taken on a momentum of its own. You know, we've, we've actually been back to Romania uh, I think this trip that I'm leaving on in uh, tomorrow, actually, this will be the fourth time that I've been to Romania playing this music. And we've we've also visited, uh, performed in uh, many countries in, in Western and Eastern Europe, as well as uh, a tour throughout the United States. Can you talk more about the music of the Romanian American Jazz Week? Actually, the, the, the Romanian American Jazz Week is a, uh, you know, it's a collection of compositions of, of where we arrange Romanian folk songs in the style of jazz, and also we compose uh, original compositions sort of in the style of Romanian folk music. And it's interesting because we provide two different perspectives. One of Lucian Band, who's the Romanian musician who rediscovering his music, you know, after having lived in the United States, you know, uh, as a as a as a jazz musician, and me, you know, discovering Romanian music for the first time. So, so when we put this these two perspectives together, you know, we we came up with the Romanian American Jazz Suite. Well, that's, it all sounds really exciting. Uh, I encourage folks uh, to check out all of Sam's recordings, the newest of which is called Blue Soliloquy. It's uh, an album of solo soprano saxophone that is uh, as fascinating as it is engaging. And my guest is Sam Newsom. And uh, Sam, it's been a real pleasure talking to you about this music. I thank you for taking the time, particularly the uh, the night before you leave. <laughs> oh, it's been my pleasure.
That's music from Sam Newsom and his new CD, Blue Soliloquy, Solo Works for Soprano Saxophone. I'm Jason Crane. You're listening to The Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. If you'd like to donate to the show, you'll find a button at thejazzsession.com that says Donate. If you'd like to give a little back for what the Jazz Session has given to you, feel free to do so. The show is free, but uh, could certainly use your financial support. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music for this program. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the Jazz Session logo. Please go out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And don't forget to check out my book at jasoncrane.org store. And then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.